Welcome, everybody. Here we are, the last shiur before we move into the very exciting, very special, the next stage of the development of the Chabura. Uh, we've had a phenomenal year, Baruch Hashem. We've we've really had such a such a unique year. Not you know, meeting people from around the world, having teachers from around the world, topics that haven't really been touched upon. Um, really opening minds, uh, improving our understanding of, of what it means to be part of this framework. And, and it, 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 it excites me to see that this is just the beginning of so much Bezrat Hashem uh, that we are to offer with thanks to our students and of course, our teachers. Uh, here we are now in part two of the series on Haraf Cook uh, in partnership and collaboration with Mizrahi UK. Again, a big shout out to Rabbi Sean, Rabbi Kenigsberg for making this happen. Um, I do, uh, I think most of the people here already signed up by now, uh, but I'm very excited to, to say that we're, we were about 160 last week. We're now at almost 200. So we're in the 190 uh, um, area of, of number of members. And we're very, very excited to see how that number will increase in the last few days in the run up to the first year of the membership curriculum, which will be Monday, 5th of July. So the coming Monday, um, it will be obviously virtually available via Zoom, but it will also be physically available for the, those in London. Uh, if you've signed up, you will have received the emails and you will receive emails in the coming days. Uh, any questions, of course, you can reach out to me directly or through the email, uh, thechabora.gmail.com. So thank you all again for the phenomenal last year and cannot wait to be part of next year and future years with you all. Rabbi Dweck, the stage is yours. Thank you, Reb Sina. I, uh, I want to echo that. And I want to say that it's been an amazing uh, period of time. This, From the time of the launch up until now, it's been really, I have to say, I'm going to use the word staggering. And it's, uh, for me, just to be able to see the the thirst for the learning, the, the encouraging uh, enthusiasm. I want to thank, of course, Reb Sina uh, uh, for everything that he's done and all of the work that he's put into this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not small. It doesn't go, it doesn't come easily. It takes a tremendous amount of work and focus. And he's done, you know, he's done tremendously. And I also uh, want to thank all of you and all of those who are not present, who, you know, have, have, put their hat into the ring as it were and uh, and given this their effort and their 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 time their attention one of the most i think that perhaps it's not it's unspoken but perhaps one of the most uh encouraging things about all of this is is that the most precious gift that anyone can give anyone in this world is attention and you've given hours and hours and hours of your attention. That's not a personal gift. It, in reality, is a gift to you, and that you've given your attention to such important things. But uh, it is a vote of confidence and strength to a derech in Torah, to a way in Torah, a way in Israel that I believe has long been quiet or whispering. And what we've done is we've raised the volume on that a bit. And we will continue to raise the volume on it. Barzrat Hashem it barach, and that should be it should be with continued 
Hatzlacha, Leman Yagdil Adir, for no other purpose except for Klal Israel to be strong in their Avodah Vakadosh Baruchu, in their service of Vakadosh Baruchu, in their own growth in his blessing and light. I want to uh, echo as well my gratitude and thanks to Mizrahi UK for this particular you know, uh, aspect that we do in collaboration. I look forward very much to further collaboration. There is um, very much that we share in common in terms of our approach and our desire and our focus and aims for uh, our work uh, in, in teaching Torah and encouraging the growth in Klal Yisrael. So I want to thank Rabbi Kenningsberg and I want to thank uh, Rabbi Shaw, good, both good and close friends and allies. Um, so I look forward to much of that together. I also want to dedicate this shiur, Le'ilui Nishmat Shalomo Ben Eliyahu, Bedina. Shiyeh Nishmatot Surab Surah Haim and Yezichro Baruch. Without further ado, I'm going to get into the details of tonight's uh, tonight's look into the world and thought of Rav Cook. Um, Tonight's essay that I want to look at comes from the same section of his book, Orot, and the section of Zironim, he calls it. But here he does an, an analysis. He makes an analysis. And one might look at this and think, well, why is he doing this? I mean, you know, it's an interesting point, but what's the purpose of it? And I want you to think about that as we look through it. Yeah, because on the surface, it seems to be, well, I mean, it's an interesting insight. Not sure that anybody's really said it in that way before. but. Um, it is very, very likely that there's more to it than meets the eye ostensibly. It's important to always recognize who is writing, when are they writing, what is the framework from within which they write. And remember that Rav Kook was writing from a place in where the, the, uh, the momentum for building uh, Eretz Israel, for building presence in Eretz Israel, was coming predominantly from a uh, irreligious cohort of Klal Israel, right? That had essentially, for all intents and purposes, lost their connection to mitzvot, to avodah, in the sense, in the classical sense that we understand it. And yet they become the architects, the foundational builders of what we know as the modern state of Israel. It's uh, in no small part, you know, it, it, it drew a tremendous amount of, in its time until today, in certain circles and areas, drew a tremendous amount of, of criticism and opposition. Rav Cook saw this, there's no question about the fact that Rav Cook saw this as one of the great developments of Klal Yisrael, and so he found himself in a very strange position. He found himself in a position in where he had to give a, an understanding and place for all of these members of Klal Yisrael who were completely religious, many of them atheists, where do they belong? You know, and so he wrote a great deal around that. And this particular essay touches not directly on that. I'm, the essay that touches much more uh, directly on that is longer than I think is we have time for tonight. I mean, Rav Cook is known to say, and if you know, we may get that, you know, we, we may present that somewhere somehow at some point. Um, that we owe a debt of gratitude to the atheists. He wasn't afraid to write this. And he writes it in the same series of essays in Zironim. And he says, we owe a debt of gratitude to them because they gave us the courage to break and shatter all of our false gods uh, that we so dearly hold within us in various modes and ways. 
That's a very brave thing to say. Anyone other than Rav Cook said that, they'd probably be annihilated. And he, they tried to do that to him, but you know, he was too big, too big to fail, as they say. So we're going to look at a, a more simple essay, although it's although it looks simple on the surface, I think there's a great deal in it. Um, which looks still at what's happening in the shift of paradigm in, in the nation of Israel, in terms of how it is that we relate to life and, and through which lens we see it. And he titles this essay, Hacham Adif Minavi, which is a, is a, a, a phrase that is coined by the Hachamim, in the Talmud, right? Where they say that a, a wise man, a scholar is greater than a prophet. And this is, and many people have given their glosses on what exactly that means. What does it mean that a, that a hacham is greater than a navi, than a, than a prophet? This is his treatment of the idea in, in the circumstances in which he found himself. We're going to look through that. Again, I remind you, if you were with me the first time that we read of Cook, his language is not, it's quite unique, right? He's writing in Hebrew. He's writing very sophisticated and nuanced ideas in an old and poor language. Uh, but he does it very interestingly. So we're going to have to get used to the awkwardness of his Lashon, right, of his language. I'm going to do the best that I can to kind of help you through that. Although even for me, it's awkward at times. I have to like orient my mind to Rav Cook speak in order to be able to get through his, uh, his, his language and dialogue. So let's have a look at it. I'm going to share the screen uh, and show the text. Yeah, I hope everybody can see. And this is called Hacham Adif Minavi. And he says, starts very simply saying, It is the custom of the world, right? Meaning it is the way of the world. The poets and the imaginary, the, the imagining individuals, those who give over parable, right? So the ones who speak in terms of fairy tales or who speak in terms of parables or who speak in terms of fables, and poetry, what do they do? What they do is They do a phenomenal job of describing the splendor and beauty of life in general, right? They talk about all aspects of the world, of life experience, of, of all various aspects of, of our, of our uh, awareness and experience of life. Talk, they talk about all of the various corners and aspects that are beautiful in life. Right, especially where talk, you know they do this in a way that is extremely strong in terms of its flow. Right, what is the flow of life? Where things move, and how it is that the do of life—that's literally what talhayim means—how it manifests in so uh, broad and encompassing a way. Not only do they talk about the positive, beautiful things, they talk about the negative things very well. They talk about the ugliness of life. They talk about the, the dark parts of life. They talk about evil even. And they do a very good job in terms of rejecting it or in terms of putting it in its place and all of their power, right? With their, with their, with their uh, skill and talent of poetry, of of artistry and putting things out in that way. But then he makes an observation. And he says, these poets, these artists, these, these uh, you know, these writers and so on, 
they do a wonderful job of painting the picture in their various modes of these elements of life, sometimes in exquisite ways, sometimes in harrowing ways. They bring to us experience like no other. But there's one thing that he claims they're lacking. What are they lacking? But to get down and delve into the details of the mechanisms that create these things that they're putting out to us, the specific modes and mechanics that present these things, you know, you talk about the beauty of life and what these things do to the beauty of life. What are the inner mechanics that make it beautiful? Those are things that nobody likes to talk about, right? You never want, it's like there's a Nassim Taleb. I don't know if you guys are aware. First of all, I don't know if you're aware of him. Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He's a, an important author and thinker. You know, so he wrote uh, The Black Swan and he wrote uh, Fooled by Randomness. I, I highly recommend his books, you know, to, for various reasons. But in any case, he has one very thin book of Michelet, right? Which Michelet simply means proverbs. He wrote his own proverbs. They're phenomenal. They're beautiful proverbs. They're great and insightful proverbs. And it's called the bed of Procustus, which there's a whole, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, myth, mythology around the bed of Procustus that, that he would invite people to his home. And if they didn't fit in the bed, they would, he would either cut off his, their legs and their head in order to be able to fit them in the bed appropriately. In any case, he writes all of these adages in, this, in, this, uh, in these parables, in these, in these proverbs. And one of the things that he says is, if you want to annoy a poet, explain his poetry. Right? Why? Why does that annoy a poet? Of course it annoys a poet, because a poet doesn't want the wiring of the poetry to be pulled apart, because then you lose the poetry. And what Rav Cook essentially is saying is there are people who write poetry and then there are people who explain why poetry is poetry. The poets don't like to explain why poetry is poetry. They simply like to write the poetry and they want you to experience the poetry as it is. A painter wants to paint his image and you experience the painting as it is. Who comes along and looks at the painting or looks at the poetry and starts to question, why does the painting do what it does to us? What is What are the, the constituent elements of this painting? What are the constituent aspects of this poetry? Those things are done by scholars, not artists. You with me? That's where of Cook is taking us, right? So of Cook is saying, note the difference. There is holism and holistic presentation. And then there is question as to what are the constituent elements? What are the mechanics? What is functioning here in order to be able to create that experience? So for example, you watch comedy. You laugh till your guts are hurting. Why are you finding that funny? That's not a question that you want to entertain when you're watching the comedy. But it's a scholarly question, which sometimes annoys us, but nonetheless is a question worth asking. What makes something funny? And why do we find certain things funny? Is it the incongruency of it? Is it the spontaneity of it? What is it? 
Those are questions that we don't often contemplate in regular arenas of life because we just experience what they are. We find something funny, we laugh. We find something beautiful, we open our eyes and are, and are moved by it. Why do we find certain things beautiful? As a matter of fact, in more succinct terms, what makes something beautiful? Those questions, what makes something funny? Those questions are what, what uh, uh, Rav Cook is saying over here on the second point. He's saying, What are the causes, the detailed elements? When you pull the holistic experiential elements apart, what's in the wiring that affects us that way? So this is a very important question that he's asking. And he's saying, Yes, so you say, what is a good life? X, Y, and Z is a good life. Or for my British people, X, Y, and Z is a good life. Yes, but why is that a good life? How do those things make life good? Different question dealt with by different kinds of people. And so what he's saying is, once I know how it is that these things function, how do I ensure that they are protected? The most minute elements. How do I make sure that they're protected appropriately? Because if I don't take care of these detailed mechanics or these constituent elements that nobody really pays attention to, what will happen is if they go wrong, they will end up having effect on the entirety. Those questions, it has no place or business in the imaginary, when I say imaginary, I don't mean imagination, imaginary, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Visions. I'm talking about the imaginative function of the human mind, right? The imaginative function of the human mind doesn't deal with those nitty gritty details. He calls it haham vihaaz, the hot and powerful imaginative function of the mind that sees these broad holistic elements. It doesn't deal with the nitty gritty details. What deals with those details? Scholarship, scrutinizing, uh, uh, explorative scholarship, wisdom. You with me? I can't see any of you, but I hope you are. <laughs> so if, you're, if you're nodding your head, I don't know that you are. But nonetheless, I hope you, you're with the essence of where it is, right? At the very least of where it is that Rav Cook is, is going for this. And that's why we have, of course, we know that people, you know, you talk about big picture people. And then you have people that deal with the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of things. And both are not necessarily able to do what the other is. And what, what, what Rav Cook is pointing out over here is that these are two different disciplines that don't really work to you know, as one. Well, who deals with the nitty-gritty details? Not of the beauty and holism of life, but rather the functions and mechanics of, of, of human, human life? Well, that's the work of the rofim, the doctors, 
the physicians, the people that you know that that are that are frugal, economic, that weigh carefully all of the elements of of life. How does the economy work? How is it that we make sure to maximize the the resources that we have? Hashoftim, the judges that have to deal with the minutia of law that keeps a society together. And then another way that you experience this, you know, when you tour a city, it's a wonderful way of experiencing this. When you're touring, right, you're visiting, you see a city, you're enchanted by the, by the energy and charm of a city. Try living in the city. Try having to pay the water bill and get your, you know, the, uh, the, the trash taken in the right times. Try figuring out transportation and where you're going to raise your children. That's a whole different story, isn't it? Touring is one thing, getting stuck in the nitty gritty deal. So it's like, you know, people who move to Israel. Not that I'm negating in any way people moving to Israel. Everybody should if you can. But people tend, when people talk to me about it, they tend to have these idealistic ideas of living in Israel. They don't always realize that they're going to have to read their phone bill or their internet bill in Hebrew. And have to deal with the mentality of Israeli society and how they do things. Those things don't come up. That's why I also say to people in a very, in a different but similar way, you know, people say, oh, the world, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh my gosh, what a disaster. Things have never been so bad. That's a bunch of nonsense. Rubbish, as we say here. The world has never been better. You are right now living in the very best times. And the way to test that is to genuinely consider very carefully, if I were to give you the opportunity, the genuine real opportunity to go back 50 years, 20 years, not to visit, not to see it as an observer, to stay there, would you? The likelihood is not. And if you say yes, well, we'd have to have a discussion on that to really pull it apart and see if that's what you think. It's very different to see things in broad strokes than to understand the mechanics and underpinnings of all of it. And he's saying there is one thing that artists do that those who have high imaginative faculty, right? Not that they live in their imagination, but they have the faculty to be able to see the poetry in all things, the wholeness, holistic presentation and experiential fullness of all things. And then there are those who delve into the why and how of those things. Those are done by the doctors, the economists, the judges, and all of the practical thinkers in the world. Then he says, in two words, now I want to take you Let's go up a level. And when he says up a level, he means in holiness, not necessarily in function. What he's done in the opening paragraph, he's presented to you the concept so that he can give you the next point from a Torah perspective. 
So what he does is he takes this concept, which is a very, I mean, he could say the full opening paragraph in any, you know, secular university, and they would get what he's talking about. They may argue with what he's talking about, but they get what he's talking about. So he's presenting a, a concept in the first paragraph. He uses that concept to address this Navi Hacham issue. And he says, prophecy says, what did prophecy do, right? The prophets. Now it's important to understand, he doesn't say this explicitly, but anybody who's aware of how Harambam talks about prophecy in the Murena Bukhim knows that he talks about the fact that prophets, that the prophecy runs in, uses, for lack of a better term, the imaginative faculty of the human brain to manifest in the human mind, right? In other words, if a human being didn't have or doesn't have imaginative capacity, Nivoa doesn't roll well with that person, right? So he's, he's parallel, he's using parallels to this. So he says, look, what did the Nibi'im do? The majority of their function, right? If you look at, if the grand total net message from the Nebi'im was, don't do Avodah Zarah. That was the majority of it. They smashed Avodah Zarah in every way that they could. Bechol Oz, with all of their strength, that's all they spoke about, for the most part, right? And they spoke about, Hadrat Noam Adonai Ahad Elohav. They spoke about the great beauty and splendor and oneness of our God. They spoke about God and his Torah and his word in the most soaring and splendid terms. And they spoke about they spoke about the destruction of all of the failed human behaviors and, and, and uh, attributes. So they spoke about how it is that we need to be careful about how careful we have to be at how we treat poor people, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't cheat them, we shouldn't cause them distress. That's plenty in the words of the Nebuchadnezzar. You know, they spoke about moral living. They condemned murder like they needed to. Everything that the Nebiim did, the Torah already spoke about. They just had to expand and expand and expand and put it out in every soaring poetic way that they could. Niuf, they spoke about promiscuity and illicit sexual behavior. Hamas vishod and theft and robbery and crime of that nature. They were filled with the spirit of God in order to be able to raise a people into holiness through holy speak. Okay, well, you know, that's fine. What's missing in the words of the Navi? So what is he what is he comparing the Nabiim to without directly doing that? I mean he will, but it's clear where he's going. He's comparing the Navi to those people at the beginning of the essay that he was talking about. The people talk about the grand beauty of life, the dark elements of life, and how we express those things. However, you know, you talk about Abu Dazara, right? 
We talk about the sin, yeah? What about hasa'arot hadakot shemehen mitztarfot avot agala shelahatat? He's using a term from Sefer Yeshaya, the avot agala shelahatat. There's a pasuk in Yeshaya that says that the sins of Israel have become binding on them. They are holding Israel like the cables of a chariot or a, or a wagon, right? You can imagine in the old days, right? You got the oxen and they have to be tied to a wagon. I mean, those are some pretty hefty, thick rope, right? Cords. And so Yeshaya, using his poetry, was saying, your sins, Israel, are binding you like the rope and the bindings of, of, of the wagons of the oxen. You're tied by these thick cables with your sin. So what is, what is uh, uh, Rav Kook do? He picks up on Yeshaya's uh, imagery. And he says, yes, but think about those cables, those ropes. Think about the fibers that make up those ropes. That's literally what this means. The thin hairs, the thin fibers that come together to form the very ropes or cords, cables of the wagon that Yeshaya is talking about. Yeshaya is only looking at, at the cords of the wagon that are holding you, which is you can't get out of it. You're bound with those thick, heavy cables. Says Rav Kook, think about the fibers of those cables. What is the, what's forming them? What are they made of? What is the sin of Avodah Zarah made of? It's wonderful. This is, I can't stress enough how important this is, what Rav Kook is pointing out over here. And he will say this explicitly. He will say the Nevi'im focused on deed. They didn't focus on cause. They said, stop doing it. They did not address what are the mechanisms that are causing you to do this. Which he refers to as the fibers of the cables of the wagons. Or, in another image, the capillaries that allow for the thick Blood, the blood that runs through the thick veins to fast to manifest in all aspects of the body. What about the, the capillaries, the thin capillaries, that through them the thicker veins run through and spread into the body? Says Rav Kok. Those things. Those constituent elements, those things are completely lost. They are hidden from the eye of every prophet and seer. Now, he doesn't say that they know about them or they see them, don't speak about them. He says they're hidden from the eye of the Navi. The Navi is not even focusing on that. That is, I can't even stress how powerful a statement that is and how brave a statement that is i mean he's saying this about the neviim of israel he's saying something fundamental about the mindset and perspective of a prophet i hope you're with me so then he goes and he says look 
you and I, you know, this is important to realize. You read through all of the Navi. Do you ever see the Navim saying, hey, you know something? You guys aren't putting on tefillin. Do you ever see them say, I, you know, I wish you were eating kosher a little bit more often. Maybe you should be more careful. Tzitzit, you know. All of the contemporary things that, you know, modern religious orthodoxy deals with is not found in any of the Nevi'im. Now, you say, does that mean we shouldn't be concerned with them? So Rav Kook says, HaMitzvot HaMaasiyot Kulanu Prateh Hilchotehen The mitzvot, the practical, active mitzvot, and all of the details of their law, with all of their precision and pinpointed details, one after the other. How indeed, after the regular, consistent keeping of them and study of them, not just the acting in them, doing of them, but studying them, the regulatory nature of engaging in them, and the care and endearment of oneself to them. Through that comes the overall beauty that is embedded in them. All right, so essentially what Rav Cook is saying is, if you don't have the fibers of the cords, of the cables, you don't have any cables. So the fact that the Nebim were talking about these broad strokes, he's now talking about in the positive sense, but you understand that the concept manifests positive or negative. There are constituent elements to all of the broad and holistic as aspects of life. And what he's saying is the, the, the fibers of the cords or cables of beauty and light and the spirit of God are the mitzvot and the halachot, the detailed halachot of those mitzvot. And so when you engage in them regularly and you bind them through together, the, the pleasure, inner pleasure that is within them comes out. And through that, the flow of life that is divine, that is pure, pushes out the worship of idols. To the point that it can't even raise its head anymore in any real fashion. And how to the contrary, right? So you hear what he's saying. Essentially what he's saying is that the, the focus on the mitzvot and the halachot, which started to shift, with the Anshekhanes the Gedola. Because remember how it is that it that it moves. The, the first line of Perkeavot basically takes all of this into account, doesn't it? Moshe Kibbeot Torah Misnayim Sarah Leoshua, Shua Zekanim Zekanim, the Nevi'im, the Nevi'im, Nevi'im, Mesaruha, Lanshekhanes the Gedola. Anytime that you see, and it's only twice, that you see in that Mishnah, right, in that opening line, the word Mesaruha there is a paradigmatic shift in the Misirah. And the paradigmatic shift always includes a move away from Nebuah. Moshe kibel Torah misinai um le What's the move away from Nebuah there? And you're going to see, you can deal with it in a different way here. 
Once Moshe gave over the, the Torah to Yahushua, the use of Nebuah to determine halacha and deen was now invalid. It could no longer be functioning. It continues, though, to manifest in these ways, right? How do we live our lives? What should we do? What shouldn't we do? That we can hear the Nebim all day long talk about. Until what? Until, so it says, Yoshua, God from Moshe, Yoshua, Moshe, Masara, Yoshua, Yoshua, Zikinim, Zikinim, Nebim, there's no Misaruha. Nebim, Misaruha, gave it over, what changed there? Nebuah completely vanished. So even the elements that the Nebim were dealing with now moved into the, the hands of the Hachamim, not the Nebim. And the Hachamim very brazenly and boldly themselves said, Hacham Adif Minavi. Hacham is better than Avi. And what Rav Kook is suggesting is that through the Hachamim's focus, also recognize that until the Hachamim come along, nobody has anything to say in Perkei Avot. How come nobody said anything that should be published in Perkei Avot from Yehoshua down until the Anshei Oh, they did, huh? Well, what did the Nebim say? Well, they have a whole bunch of books that they wrote that were really of different subject matter, so you know, we're not going to include it here. And all of a sudden, everybody's got something to say. Who are they? The Hachamim. What are they focusing on? They're focusing on Halakha. Nebim never spoke about Halakha, ever. They did. They spoke about deed, and Dean. And what Rav Cook is suggesting is that's what ended finally Avodah Zarah. The Hachamim weren't dealing with the constituent elements. They were dealing with the broad strokes. They were dealing with symptoms, not causes. The Hachamim went into the depths of the wiring and started to focus on that and built it from the bottom up. It's yucky. It's not as pretty that's why it says, you know, the Talmud Bavli is dark and death. That's how the Achamim define the Talmud Bavli. They use a pasuk from Iyot, from Echa to talk about what the nature of the Talmud Bavli is. Hoshivani bamhashechim kimte olam. He put me in the darkness like the dead. It says in the pasuk. Say the Achamim, zo Talmud Bavli. That's the Babylonian Talmud that delves into the nitty-gritty details of things. And so Rav Kook is saying that that is really what ended up vanquishing Avodah Zarah. To the point that it couldn't raise its head anymore. And to the contrary, how the slow regression and the belittling of deed, of behavior, and their details, opens a path of destruction. Because the fibers that hold, that, that create, or that make up the cables, disintegrate. And therefore, all of the vessels that are meant to hold the spirit of the divine, 
And for that matter, the very musings and creative drive of the human being, when the vessels are no longer able to hold those elements, what ends up happening is that the imaginative functions, which seem very shiny on the outside, but are filled with poison on the inside. It ends up becoming more abundant. And we know what ends up happening when imaginative functions do not have conduits and vessels within which it can work. It can entertain every possible non-reality. And we have the ability as human beings to live very strongly in the non-realities that we conjure up in our minds as though they are realities. This point, right, these elements, the ma'asim, the halachot, the behaviors, the, the, the actions, that wasn't given to nibu'ah at all. That wasn't part of prophecy. The only prophecy that held both the imaginative aspects and the nitty-gritty details was the nibu'ah of Moshe Rabbeinu. And that Harambam says was a completely different mode of Nibu'ah, not just in terms of the principles. When he talks about the Nibi'im having a Nibu'ah that rides in the imaginative function, he makes sure to delineate Moshe Rabbeinu's Nibu'ah that didn't run in the imaginative function. He says that only functions in the Nibu'ah the Nibu'ah that looks at, at the image or the mirror that is cloudy which is all other Nebi'im other than Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe's Nebu'ah was completely holistic. It held both. The Nebu'ah of Pe'el-Pe, the clear image. It is the only Nebu'ah that is able to hold both the holistic experiential aspects of reality and the constituent details that make up those realities. You with me? But as the Torah says, nobody like him. It's another reason why, again, another reason why it's important to recognize that Nebu'ab Moshe Rabbeinu is utterly unique, as Harambam puts it out, as one of our Ikare Emunah. And because not everybody is a Moshe Rabbeinu, there was this bifurcation of these, of these elements of life. So the broad elements, the holistic elements were given to the prophets and the constituent detailed elements were given to the Hachamim. And you know what says Rav Kook? The Achamim told us something about them. You want to say they're different but equal? No. Acham adif min avi. Acham is preferable to an avi. In our terms, in our circumstances. Mashelo asta nebu'ah, I mean the reality is, the bottom line, is what the nebu'ah was not able to do in a thousand years. With all of its artillery, an arsenal and weaponry that it tried to use in order to be able to eradicate Abu Dazara from Israel, 
ולשרש אחרי קרי ההשפלות היותר גרועות של עשק וחמאס, and to remove all kinds of crime from the people, רצח וזימה, murder and illicit and licentiousness, רדיפת שוחד, ונשים running after all kinds of bribes and personal, personal uh, one-upmanship. What they couldn't do, עשו החכמים בהרחבת התורה, והחכמים did by expanding תורה. by delving into and unpacking Torah. How did they do it? By establishing students, by teaching it. In mass and vast gatherings. In repeating over and over again the principles and the details of the law and their and their their developments as it says halichot alamlo the ways of the world are his altikre halichot the ways or the walkings and the halachot read it it's the halachot that bring the world to a person why is he writing this he's writing this whether it's to himself or to those who read it in response to the relinquishing of for lack of a better term, religious practice. So what ended up happening is after a long time, he says that the, the, listen to this very interesting point. He says the reason why prophecy left was because the hachamim did it better. He's not saying that the prophecy left because it was time for prophecy to go. You're saying it became obsolete. It just wasn't working. After a long period of time, the work of the hachamim overpowered the work of the nebiim. That's literally what it means. So the went away. Days, you know, extended, expanded, went on. And the principle, now this is very important because he says, but what ended up happening after that? He said, because the hachamim were spending so much time on the details, the principles started to get shaky. The principles that the Nebi'im had instilled in us for a thousand years that were solid, that the hachamim relied upon and thought that were intact, that they allowed for them to delve into the details, those principles started to teeter and destabilize because of the immense focus on the details. They became absorbed into the details and were no longer seen on the outside. So where are we now? He doesn't continue. Now he just jumps to Mashiach time, right? Where are we now? Right here, see between this, this period and this opening sentence, this little gap over here, this is, you are here. And what he's saying has happened in one line, right? Because he doesn't want to eradicate the practice, but he's recognizing what occurred. He says in one line, we have lost the forest for the trees. And that is why we've come back to teaching principles. 
I'm just going to leave that there for you to consider. I'm not going to elaborate on that any further because if the Rav didn't, then I won't, but I'm just putting it in there. He says, Alken, therefore, in the end of days, as we come closer to the days of Mashiach, which Rav Kook couldn't even imagine. Rav Kook, and Rav Kook has a pretty powerful foresight. I'm telling you right now, there is no way that he would have been able to know what the state of Israel, what the Jewish people in the world look like today. That nobody for 2,000 years could have even begun to dream of what you and I take for granted as being the manifest nature of our people in the world today. If you thought, think that isn't Aharit Yamim, think again. No, you think Aharit Yamim means that it's happening in a day or two or a year or two. No. Could be a century from now. Process. Trust the process. But recognize that we are not where we were for 2,000 years. Something fundamentally has changed that was not the case and was consistent for 2,000 years. So in a harita, I mean, mahalach shibat or you will begin to see the, the glimmerings of the light of prophecy manifest again. As it says, Kadosh Baruch Hu says, not just going to be prophets, I'm going to pour my ruach, my, my, my influence, my spirit on all flesh, not on all of you, right? Doesn't even say I'll call Israel, nor does it even say on all you, all flesh, I'll call Basar. As sinat pratim titgaber. Listen to what he says. I know I underlined it over here, but that was for my purposes. But this is the most powerful line. He goes, what you will find, you know what an indication is that the end of days are around? People will hate details. They won't be able to handle the, the halachot anymore. They won't be able to handle the nitty-gritty details anymore. They will thirst for principles. All of that wisdom that everybody poured into all of their books will spoil. You will find yourself sitting in libraries where it has been written and written and written and written and every single fiber of every cable has been delineated, identified, and codified. And you will find yourself at a loss in all of it. The Achamim that have spent their days, the Tamil Achamim have spent their days putting boundaries around things. That's what they call them, right? That have been spent their lives. And Shehagvul are the people that set boundaries. The Achamim, they're constantly delineating, defining, establishing boundaries. They will go from city to city and not find a resting place. They won't find themselves anymore within society as they once did. Up until the point, not like unripe fruits, but like bikurim, like the very first fruits, with all of its excitement, the sparks of prophecy will manifest again and emerge from their sheath that they were held in. Now, I understand this is very poetic, but remember, then the, in the Andalusia, there were a lot of poets. I'll just say, people thought in poetic terms. 
וזאת תכיר בכללה את גודל פעולת החוכמה ובענבת צדק תקרא חכם עדיף מנביא. Yes, we will see in that time what the period of Hochmah did for us, how it developed so much for us. And we will recognize that Hacham Adif Menavi. But what we will say is it's time now for the Nevoah and the Hacham, the Navi and the Hacham to merge. It's time for the holism to synergize and integrate with the details. Hesed ve'emet. That the righteousness and the peace should kiss each other. Righteousness means the judgment, the tzedek, and the peace, the holism, the shlemut of shalom. Those things should come together. Truth should flourish and sprout from the earth. And from the heavens, righteousness should come down. You see the imagery. These are a psukim. He's not writing this. These are psukim. He's just quoting the psukim. God will give the good and our earth will give its produce. Right? So he's talking about these heaven-earth interactions, kissing, connecting, synergizing. And in that time, when that is ripe and ready, when the heaven and earth kisses and connect, the soul of Moshe the soul of Moshe will manifest once again in the world. So yes, highly poetic, but nonetheless, if you hear what I hear in his words, extremely pertinent and important as a lens for us to be able to have a sense of understanding of where we are and what's been going on. Yes, it's the perspective of Rav Cook, but nonetheless, something that is quite well thought and which makes sense. And he's giving it framework for us to be able to have a sense that this is not just all a bunch of crazy nonsense that's going on, but there is a development of it. There is a, there is a, an interesting, you know, uh, method to the madness, if you will, in terms of what it is that we're dealing with. So there you are. That's Rav Cook for today. I think that we're done with Rav Cook for a while. It's nice tasters, right, of who he is and what he's doing. But uh, yeah. Thank you, Rav. Thank you. Uh, well, I mean, I'd like to before we open up. For everyone to come and ask questions, I'd like to ask a question. Sure. What was it that made Rav Cook so in tune with reality? For someone to be in such a position that he was at such a critical time in our for our nation, what was his background that led him to be? Because it's not that he was just talking about contemporary issues; he was mm -hmm. actually dissecting, analyzing, and responding yeah. to them in a way that uh, it's, it's just it's unbelievable because it's cutting edge even today. Right. I, I so do what, think what it was is. his background, his teachers? What, what's, uh, what is it? So, I mean, Rav Cook, it's important to recognize. I mean, I think that it's important to, uh, to say that our introductory shiur next to, this is next Tuesday, right? Monday, uh, Monday. Oh, it's Monday, sorry. Monday. So our introductory shiur for, you know, when we go into membership, where we're kind of unpacking our mission statement, we will look at the Morene Bukhim, a certain passage in the Morene Bukhim. And I genuinely believe that Rav Cook absorbed and held that and lived it. And what that essentially is, without giving, without you know, putting it out before we do it, is he genuinely, genuinely, Rav Cook genuinely saw the entire world, as you saw from our last essay that we did last time, as Hakadosh Baruch Hu's, as the expression and ways of Hakadosh Baruch Hu. So to him, understanding every aspect of it was absolutely essential. He didn't see it as, uh, you know, let me try and do this so that I better understand. 
To him, this was all part of the endeavor. So it's important. I mean, if you really want to see it, you know, he, he has, I mean, I feel bad about it because he has, they published his diary, which I feel probably was never meant to be published because he really does pour his heart out into this thing and talk about his own inner feelings and inner, you know, inner emotions and the ups and downs that he went through. And, you know, he felt at times that, you know, he needed to do more halakha, you know, he wasn't spending enough time in halakha and he needed to study this and do that. You know, but he was an individual that genuinely, in the in the most basic sense, I could say to you, he truly believed that the understanding in every aspect of the world in which he lived was his connection to God. And he loved God. I mean, he really had a fiery soul. And where to him, the most important thing to him at all times, every time, every day, was to connect to God in the deepest way that he could. But he believed this was his way. So, I mean, look, he was a brilliant man. There's nothing to say, you know, he was, but, and it is cutting edge till today, but he kind of got it. He, he, he made it his business, but he also, because of his love of God, and I'll finish with this, he had the most immense love for, for the Jewish people. Every one of them, every one of them, not just the religious ones, not just the, you know, the, the ones that looked like him or thought like him. He genuinely believed that every single member of the people was precious and important. So he spent time trying to understand us, right? trying to help recognize what is the overall function, mechanism, situation of our people. He looked at the fact that people who were not religious in any way, shape, or form were building the country again. Like, what is going on? Why? He didn't just reject it out of hand and say, eh, Rishayim. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think that that's part of it. Thank you, Rav. Any questions, please go ahead and uh, unmute. Doesn't look like we have any questions. Ah, a comment from Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Brilliant. There we go. Okay. okay, it's a lot. Whenever you get through a cook, you need like a day or two. Seriously, I'm reviewing this as soon as we're done. <laughs> I'm putting it on YouTube and reviewing it. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Rav, thank you so, so much for all that you've done for us. Can't wait Honor for all that pleasure. you will be doing Looking for us. And uh, see you all on Monday. If you haven't signed up yet, thehabura.com forward slash join, although Monday sure will also be publicly available. See you all soon. Good day. Good night. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Have a great day.